Thank you for listening to Embassy City Church's audio podcast. We pray God speaks to you through this message and His Word today. For more information on our church, please visit us at embassycity.com. So 1 John chapter 3. Now, I'm going to read something out of the middle of a book, all right? Now, because it's in the middle, I need to set up the context. Here's uh, 30 to 60 seconds of context. In the first century, it was very difficult to be a Christian. Um, It was, one, illegal. If you got caught doing it, they killed you, right? And by the way, the charge, and this is true, was atheism, right? And the reason is, is, is because you were saying that somebody other than Caesar was God. And so, and so you were an atheist. And so they would kill you in some horrendously unimaginable ways. That's first. Second, there was no Bible, right? It's, it's not like the Bible we have now was, was put together in the mid-300s. So these people were trying to, and 97% of people couldn't read. And so you had a real, you had a real issue. And here's, and here's what was happening, right? The first century church was starting to divide over doctrinal debates. And I know that'll surprise you because we would never do that. We would never treat people differently because we disagree about a petty doctrine. That's not us. But them, they would do that. Now, here's what happened is there were three major doctrinal debates in the first century. Here, here, here they are. First, uh, there was a group of people who were debating whether or not Jesus actually had skin on or not, right? So there was a group of people who said Jesus came in flesh. There was another group of people that said, we believe in Jesus, but he was a 33-year spiritual apparition, right? And so they were debating that. I know that sounds silly, but that, that was the debate. Second debate was, was did the cross work for the whole world or just Jews? right? And the third debate was, was do, to inherit eternal life, do, is it faith in Christ alone or is it faith in Christ and, 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 and. And so they were trying to navigate this stuff. Now in the middle of this, there's this guy named John and he's writing a letter back to believers. So he's not trying to be an evangelist. He's in the letter. He's not trying to get people saved or something. He's, he's, he's saying, wait a minute now, wait a minute. You are followers of Jesus and here's how followers of Jesus should live in their world. Because in the first century, Christianity was not a group of people trying to get the right thoughts in their head so they could go to heaven when they died. Christianity in the first century was a group of people committed to living different in the world they were in, right? And that's what he's writing about. So he, he writes this letter, and if you read it from the beginning, it says something like this, that everything you saw in Jesus Christ was true since before the foundation of the world, that Jesus did not inaugurate a new reality about God. Jesus just simply showed you what God was always like. That's one. Two, when he forgives sins, he forgives all sins everywhere for the entire world. The cross worked really, really well. And then he sort of just ends all of his doctrinal debates. And the whole rest of the book is this. What difference does it make if you're the rightest church in Dallas, if you're not the kindest group of people in Dallas? What difference does it make if, you're, if there's no error in your creed, but in your behavior, the world doesn't see the love of God in you? What difference does that make? What difference, to, to allude to what Christina said, you can't debate people into an encounter with God. You show them something. So it's, it's that. Now, it's in that context that we read this. Check this out. First John chapter three, verse 11, I think. Yep. But this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Now watch this. We know that we have passed from death to life. 
because we get all of our doctrine straight. Nope. Because we did the right ritual at the right moment, the right time, and the right posture. Uh-uh. We know we've passed from death to life because there's no error in our creed. Uh-uh. None of this was about getting the right ideas in your head. Watch what he says. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Interesting. And anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Now, here's the frustrating part of this passage. And it's the frustrating part of what I'm saying. It's the frustrating part of what Christina would be saying. And, and, that, and that is this. When you say obvious things that are obviously true, right? But then you lack language to put around it to go, what does that, what does that look like, right? It can be very frustrating. Like if I was to say, we need to be a more loving group of people. No one can disagree. No one can go, no, we need less love. Nobody could do that. But the problem is, is what does that what does that mean? When we, say, when we say, hey, we're a place where we're not trying to get to heaven, we're trying to bring heaven to our world, right? No one goes, no, that doesn't sound right. People go, yeah, 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 but what does that actually look like? Because see, Christianity was never a movement of people trying to go somewhere else. Christianity was always from the beginning a movement trying to bring heaven down, which is what makes Christmas so, this is the initial, oh, heaven has come here. This is what it looks like in flesh and blood. And so the question is, what does this look for us individually? So today's message will have an individual application and it will have a corporate, a systemic application. So let's talk through some of this passage. Uh, Next slide. A couple of observations about this. One, evidently when you love, you're experiencing some version of eternal life now. And conversely, when you hate, you're evidently experiencing some version of death, darkness, and decrease now. He says, anybody that hates remains in death. So what is this talking about? So let's see if I can break this down a little bit. For us, this is why this is confusing. For us, life and death are static images. You're either alive or you're dead. You live or die. But in the first century, life and death were dynamic dimensions that people moved in and out of. And in scripture, it's presented as a choice. I present before you today life and death. Choose life that you might live. Choose to be in the light as he is in the light. Life, light, and increase were synonymous terms that were choices to live inside God's ways. Death, darkness, and decrease were terms that were synonymous to a life going into disrepair. None of these words have anything to do with heaven or hell when you die, not the way they were using them. They use these words as choices that we make. Obviously not literal life. No one chooses when they're born or when they die, but choices to live inside of God's ways or outside of God's ways. The way John is using life and death are not static. He's using them as dynamic dimensions. Let me see if I can make this clear by saying it this way. Next slide. For us, the question is how to have life after death. It's the dominant question. It's we're we're enamored by that. Like if, if I died today and you came to my funeral on Wednesday and then I showed up here next Sunday, I would ruin your service, right? It'd be like, oh my God, Shane Willard's back. Get him a mic. Let's have a Q and A. If we, if we had a Q&A with someone who died and rose from the dead, what would the first question be? It wouldn't even be, are you okay? It wouldn't be, would you like some water? Are you hungry? Does death work up an appetite? No, it would be, Shane, please remove the mystery. Tell us exactly what happens after you die, right? That's, that's because that's our dominant concern. But in Jesus' day, it wasn't. 
Jesus died and rose from the dead. Pretty impressive because he called his own shot, right? Comes back from the dead. And how much does he talk about heaven? None. How much does he talk about hell? None. I find that unbelievable. What I find more unbelievable is no one asked him. This guy walks out of a tomb and no one goes, ah, you're back. What was heaven like? What was hell like? We heard you preach there. Did you clean out hell, you rascal, you? How'd your altar call go? You know, when you rose from the dead, tombs everywhere emptied. What was that all about? All these crazy questions they could have asked him, they didn't. Jesus comes back from the dead and they're like, hey, you're back. Are we gonna take over Rome now? Is it now that heaven's coming here because the empire's oppressing us? See, in that day, in our day, it's what happens after death. John is not addressing what happens after death in this letter. John is addressing how to live before you die. How do you live here? And the word he uses is metababakamen. It's a long Greek word that just means to change bases. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, if you're finding your life on the basis of death, darkness, decrease, disrepair, and you want to know that you've been moved to the basis of life, your first choice is to choose to be a person of love. As someone who has faith in Jesus Christ, who's committed to living in their world a different way, the first choice for a follower of Jesus, what does a Christian look like? As far as I know, this is the most ancient definition of what it meant to be a Christian. And the most ancient definition of what it meant to be a Christian was, Christians are people who choose to love one another. Once again, a little frustrating because that's obvious. So what does that mean? Let's see if we can examine that a bit. Next slide. So John says, one entry point into life is to commit to loving each other. So let's think about this a few different ways. Central to Christianity is seeing all of life as a gift. Everything we have is free. And I'm talking big things like life free. None of us deserve that. None of us earned it. None of us introduced our parents. None of us gave them amorous feelings for each other. None of us did that. We don't deserve to be here. None of us. None of us deserve to be alive. And we woke up this morning in Dallas, Texas, not Aleppo, not South Sudan. We woke up in one of the top five greatest nations on the earth and probably the greatest state in that great nation, on the earth, right? We don't, deserve, we don't deserve to be here, nor do we deserve where we get to live. We woke, most of us woke up this morning without a chemotherapy appointment today. That's a good life. Most of us, most of us don't, most, none of us deserve this. None of us deserve, listen, we live in a place with motor cars, paved roads, stores that prepackage food for us, clean water in our tap, machines that do washing, other machines that do drying, world-class healthcare right down the road, laws that generally protect the weak from the strong. Are you kidding me right now? This is the best time to be alive ever, and we don't deserve it. The people born before 1929 didn't deserve to live in a place without antibiotics. We have antibiotics now. Before 1929, the average lifespan was 48 years old. Now we're living into our 80s. Why? Because we don't die from scratches in our front yards anymore. This is the best time ever to be alive. And none of us deserve that. Life is free. Breath, free. Everybody take a deep breath in. And then out. That was free. For now. At some point, they'll tax it. Now, free. And you know what? We take it for granted. Most of us this morning did not stop and think about the gift of breath. Most of us. You, you know, there, there, are, there would be people in the room who don't take it for granted. If you have asthma, you don't take it for granted. Pneumonia, 
emphysema, right? Or if you've ever choked, right? If you've ever instantly lost your breath, everything changes. Everything. Everything you thought was important, not important. I choked one time, one time in my whole life, acutely too, like instantaneous lost my air, right? I was meeting with a pastor in Brisbane, Australia, on the west side. This was years ago. He said, Shane, I'd like to book you, but I'd like to meet you first. Now, this is back before my schedule was full, and you just wanted anybody to give you an opportunity. So everything was important. I actually got dressed up to meet the man, right? Why? Because I wanted to make a good first impression, right? So my first impression with him was important. What I was going to say, I'm reminding myself, don't say anything stupid, right? This is a first impression. I made the worst first impression you could possibly make. I choked at a Thai restaurant, the short of the long is, a piece of calamari went down my windpipe and completely cut off my air. Well, everything changed. All the stuff I thought was important, not important. I didn't care how I looked to him. I didn't care how he looked to me. I didn't care about the noises coming out of my mouth trying to get the thing out. I didn't care. I didn't care that I was drooling all over. I didn't care. I was just trying to breathe. None of that mattered. None of that mattered. Nothing mattered. My money, I thought that mattered. Didn't matter. I'd have written, I would have wrote a check for everything I had at that time to breathe again. Everything. It didn't matter. Nothing. Everything changed. And you're suddenly okay with things you're not okay with normally. Like an Asian man I've never met sticking his fingers in my mouth. Normally I'm not okay with that. That day I was. The owner of the Thai restaurants, little Asian dude come running out, right? Put me in a reverse headlock, took his fingers and shoved it down my throat. And I loved it. I was like, ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm normally not okay with that. I don't want men sticking their fingers in my mouth. That day I didn't care. Why? Because I lost my breath. When you lose your breath, the stuff you take for granted comes right to the forefront. Forgiveness, another gift we have. Forgiveness is free. Like none of, all, none, of us, none of us is this our testimony. You know what? God wasn't gonna forgive me and was gonna eternally hold things against me until I prayed the right prayer at the right moment at the right time in the right posture. And then God was like, you know what? I wasn't gonna forgive you, but now I will. No, free. Forget, and we take that for granted. Resurrection is free. And we take that for granted. It's, ta- it's happening everywhere. It's happening in you right now, resurrection. That's why we take it for granted. I'll, I'll, let me prove it. Take a second and look at the back of your hand. Right? I want you to just become aware of something. The skin on the back of your hand is 28 days old. 28 days ago, that skin did not exist. Why? Because your skin renews itself every 28 days, which is interesting, isn't it? 28 days, which is why, and we know this intuitively, it's, it's why we don't panic. It's the winter. And if you woke up this morning and you have dark sheets, you would have noticed dandruff on your pillowcase. Why? Because it's freezing outside and the air gets drier. But none of us notice dandruff on our pillowcase and get panicky. None of us go, oh no, I'm losing skin at an alarming rate. (laughs) At this rate, I'll be dead in 28 days. No, we just know it's being renewed, right? Think about the things we take for granted. Life, breath, forgiveness, salvation, eternal life, resurrection. These are big things that none of us deserve. And here's the thing. Jesus said it this way. Somebody asked Jesus once, what is God like? And I loved his answer. He said, God is like looking at the birds and the flowers who do nothing to deserve it, but God feeds them and clothes them because they're worth it to him. 
this to me, if, if, you, if somebody says, Shane, what does it mean to be loving? Here it is. Being a loving person is the function by which you treat people as they are worth and never as they deserve. It's the function by which we treat people. Jesus said, you know what God is? God is love. What is love? Love is flowers and birds who don't deserve it, but he feeds them and clothes them. Love is when you treat somebody as they are worth and never as they deserve. Be very wary of people who only read the scripture verses that tell us what we deserve. Because there's another side to that story. Because the grace of God does not mean anything if we don't have a clear picture of what we were gonna deserve without it. And here's the thing. The truth of the matter is, the whole story is that God never treats people as they deserve. God always treats people how they're worth. And some people would call that good news. So when John says we need to be a people of love, what does that mean? That Christians are people who treat people as they are worth and never as they deserve. That, that we acknowledge, yes, you do deserve that, but we're gonna choose to treat you differently. We're gonna choose to treat you as you are worth and never ever as you deserve. Now, if all of life is a gift and none of us deserve it, yet God gives it to us, why? Because we're worth it, because we're worth it, then certain things don't belong in the light. Let, let's, let's talk about those, next slide. If life's a gift, then certain things don't belong. Things like greed, that doesn't belong. Hoarding, treating people below us, using demeaning language about them, somehow not affirming the image of God in them, complaining, that doesn't belong. Complaining, if all of life is a gift and we complain, then we're just complaining about a gift. That makes no, like this is Christmas. If, if, if you give someone, if you're a family thing and you give someone a Christmas gift uh, in a couple weeks, right? So in 10 days or so, you, you give them, you give them a, a, a Christmas gift and they open that gift and their response is this. Really? Is that your best effort, right? If somebody does that, is the problem with the gift giver or the gift receiver? Always the gift receiver, which leads me to this question. How many of us have complained about our life to God in the last 30 days? So God's given us life and breath and freedom and resurrection and salvation and forgiveness and eternal life, and we're still going, I, yeah, but I want someone else's life. What are you talking about? There's nothing, there's nothing, listen, everything we'll ever need to be everything God wants us to be is within our life right now. The question is, is are we not using what God gave us and then still asking God for more? And God's like, wait, you're not even using what I gave you. Why would I give you more? You're not, listen, there's nothing compelling about it. Let, 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 let me illustrate. I used to be on staff at a very large church. Um, and one of my jobs was I was the pastor for single adults. So my job was to minister to all the single adults. I loved it. We had this cool thing on Monday night. My last night there, we had almost 300 single adults showing up on a Monday night. It was quite a fun thing. I loved almost every bit of it, except for the part that single adults are notorious for wanting what they don't have namely a spouse, right? So, so half my week was spent hearing something like this. Shane, I just wanna be married. I wanna be married. I wanna be married. Shane, pray for me to be married. I wanna be married. Shane, I just wanna be married. Shane, pray for me to be married. Shane, I wanna be married. Shane, I wanna be married. And I'm thinking, no, you don't. Listen, let me be blunt. If you can't cope with the stress of being single, right? 
You don't have a prayer on earth coping with the stress of being married. A single person's prayer tickles me. It goes something like this. Dear blonde hair, blue eyed, English speaking Jesus. Shane here, I'm, I'm 27, I'm able-bodied and I'm single. Let me tell you about my life, Lord. I get to do what I wanna do when I wanna do it. I don't have to run it by anybody, nor do I have to feel guilty about doing what I wanna do when I wanna do it. And most importantly, Lord Jesus, no one on earth is spending my money other than me. (laughs) But despite all these things that I know sounds awesome, I'm still stressed. So I'm asking you, Lord Jesus, would you please entrust me with one of your beloved daughters in order to make my life harder? Good Lord. See, the problem is, is my other job at that church was I was the church psychotherapist, right? Because my, my master's degree is in clinical psychology, and this sounds like I'm making a joke, I'm not. My, my master's degree is actually in marriage and sex, right? So I'm a theoretical expert, right? Right? Now in practice, it's pretty much crap. But, but, but in theory, no one's better than me, right? So I was in charge of all the psychotherapy at, at the church. Now, if you know anything about church, 90% of church counseling is marriage counseling, right? So half my week was spent, Shane, I want to be married. I want to be married. Shane, I want to be married. Shane, I just want to be married. Shane, I want to be married. Shane, I want to be married. The other half of my week, I had married people in my office going, Shane, we want to be single. We want to be single. We want to be single. So here's what happened. The married people wanted to be single. The single people wanted to be married. And I'm like, I don't know what, I can hook y'all up. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Because no one wanted to bloom in the field God had planted them in. They were looking at someone else's life wanting it. Listen, if if you're married, be the best married person in the room. What other choice do you have, right? Just pray for a comet to come to earth to bring you sweet relief from them, right? And, And if you're single, be the best single person in the room. Listen, there's nothing attractive about a single adult, a a single adult wanting what they don't have. Nothing. There's nothing attractive about being any person who's solely focused on the one thing they don't have. Listen, if you're single, listen to me. The most attractive single adult, hang on, let me slow down. I feel like I'm rushing because this is important. If you're single, listen to me. One, you don't need to find the one. That's just dumb. You need to become the one that the one you're looking for is looking for. That's one. Second, there's nothing attractive about being someone focused on that. That seems desperate. The most attractive single adults in the world are the ones who wake up every day saying yes to the infinite possibilities God has for them. And they've got the throttle all the way to the ground saying yes to all those things. And then one day they wake up and realize someone else is doing it with them. That's two. Three, For the love of God, put your list away, right? It's embarrassing. Oh, Pastor Shane, Pastor, I've got my list. I'm believing God for a spouse. I've got my list. I've got my list. I'm believing God. Put your list away. Have you ever seen these lists? This guy, it's a while back now, he said, Pastor Shane, would you pray for me? I'm believing God for a wife. I've got my list. I've got my list. Would you lay hands on my list and let's pray together? I've got my list. I said, let me see your list. I am convinced this woman does not exist. She was blonde. 
for the sake of appropriateness, curvy. She was faithful, dependable, intelligent, successful in work. She had money and she was emotionally low maintenance. All in one power-packed package. We were in Australia. I said, mate, this girl's a 10, like a 10. He said, of course she's a 10, Pastor Shane. When you believe God, you believe God for a 10. He's the God of more than enough. He's the God of the possible. When you believe God, you believe God for a 10. I said, but bro, you're a four. Like on your best day, you're a four. Girls like this don't marry people like you. Girls like this marry brain surgeons. The last thing you need is for God to bring this woman in your life. She wouldn't give you the time of day. What you need to do is become a seven yourself, lower your standards 30% and something might happen. <laughs> one more thing, listen, one more thing. You marry, you marry people, you better say amen to this because I'm right about this. <laughs> listen to me, listen to me, one more thing. If you're single, listen to me. Never, ever, 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 can I be clear, ever, ask someone to change while you're dating. Dating is someone's sincerest attempt to impress you. If their sincerest attempt to impress you fails to impress you, <laughs> leave. When you're dating, Pick the thing about them that annoys you the most. Multiply it by five. Add some occasional horrendous smells under the covers and you got marriage. If you still love them, you probably found the one. And all the married people said. Yeah. We should probably move on. Next slide. The idea is, is since we receive what we don't deserve, we should treat others the same. My question is, do we treat people as they deserve or as they're worth? Today, are we treating people as they, let me go back to marriage for a second. I don't know who has the best marriage in the room, but I know something about them. Whoever has the best marriage in the room, here's what they've done. They've learned to treat each other as they are worth and not as they deserve. You don't love your wife because she deserves it. There'll be days she does. Other days, not so much. That's called life. You love your wife because she's worth it. You don't respect your husband because he deserves it. You don't. You don't respect your husband because he deserves it. There'll be days he does deserve it. There'll be days he will amaze you with his superior intellect and problem-solving abilities. Other days, he's going to be a flipping idiot. That's called life. You don't respect your husband because he deserves it. You respect your husband because he's worth it. Love is a function between two people of the ability to treat each other as we are worth and never as we deserve. Do we treat people as they are worth or as they deserve? That's a question we must deal with. Now, watch this. This is the next, very next verse. Watch what he says. Next slide. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. It's simple. You got what you don't deserve. Love is when we give others what they don't, when we're willing to die ourselves for someone else, when we're willing to have a little bit of pain so someone else can, can have some comfort, right? Now watch his, watch his application. If anyone has material possession and sees a brother or sister in need, 
but has no pity on them. How can God be in that? I love because he, he leaves it like a rabbi would. He leaves it like a question. He doesn't tell you the answer. He just says, let me get this straight. You can see a need and know it's within your power to meet that need and you do nothing about it and somehow you think God's in you? I love that. How? I'd love to hear your theology on that. So, so somehow God's in you, but you can still see a need and it's well within your power to meet it and you could turn your back on it and still call that God's in the middle of it? How's that? How's that work? And I love it because he lets us off the hook in the sense that we shouldn't be burdened by things we can do nothing about. He says, if you have it and can do something, Here's what Christian, here's, here was the earliest definition I could find of what it meant to live like a Christian. Not what it meant to be one, what it meant to live like one. Is Christians are people who treat people as they are worth and not as they deserve. And, and Christians are the group of people that when they see a need and they know they can meet the need, they don't withhold pity. They, they do something about it. Watch what he says, watch what he says. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but actions. In other words, hey, we love you around here. Actions. In truth, this is how we know that we belong to the truth. In other words, all the debates around, all the doctrinal stuff going on, eh, don't listen to their argument, listen to their life. Don't do that, don't do that. And set our hearts at rest in his presence. If, if our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than that. And he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts don't condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask. Why? Because we keep his command. Now, I don't have time to go into to the depth of this, but just to say this, he goes to great lengths earlier in the passage to say no one keeps, no, no one obeys all the rules. Anyone that says they obey all the commands, they're lying, truth isn't in them. But then here he says, we, we receive from anything we ask because we keep the command. Now, now, the word obey and the word keep in English sound like the same thing, right? But in, in, in ancient Greek, it wasn't. The, the word keep is an ancient military word, it was, a, it was actually a castle keep. A castle keep was where you put children and the vulnerable in time of attack. It was the place of last stand. It's the place, we, we, it's a protection. We, we, we use that word the same way today, but in sports. In ice hockey, you have a goal keeper. In soccer, you have a keeper. If you hire a babysitter, you might say, I need someone to keep my kids. When you ask someone to keep your kids, does that mean obey the children? No, it means protect the children. If someone said, so where does embassy, where does embassy city draw the line? You know, where, where do we, where do we, where do we draw the line? This is what we defend. Well, well, we, we, we defend the command and the command is what? He defines it. Watch this next slide. And this is his command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus, and to love one another. In other words, at embassy city, We'll discuss doctrine, but we defend love at all cost. We defend belief in Jesus and love for one another. That's where we draw the line. We keep the command. Now, now th there's a line in there that doesn't read real well. Here's, here's what it says. If anyone has material possession and sees a brother or sister in need and has no pity on them, right? That, that, that's a weird sounding sentence. If you have it and you see it, and you do nothing, 
How can God be in that, right? Now, one of the most basic hermeneutics you could ever do is just look at different translations. Translators struggle with this sentence because it's a weird sentence in Greek. Let me show you how they do it. Next slide. So, so the NIV says, have no pity on them. I see it. I know I could do something. Nah. The, the NLT says, show no mercy to them. The ISV says, withhold compassion from them. I see it. I know I could. Nah. The, the, the ASV says, shut up compassion towards them. But, but my personal favorite is the King James Version. I think it gets it right. Check this out. This is the King James Version. Shutteth up thou bowels on them. <laughs> I love that. Isn't that good? Isn't it awesome how the English language has changed, you know? In the 1600s, it was a good thing to open your bowel on somebody. It was a metaphor for being charitable or being generous, right? I'd like to go on record to say I'd like all of you to keep your bowels closed in my general direction, you know? But in the first century, and by the way, in the first century, that was true as well. The, the, in, in this case, the King James Version gets it exactly right in terms of wording. Um, and, and, and the reason is in, in the first century, the center of your being was not, was not your heart. See, today we might say, I love you with all my heart, and, and we know what we mean by that, because to us, the center of the being, being is heart. But in the first century, the center of being was your bowel. It, so, so you would never, you, you would, the, the reason is because babies come out of here, right? And so, so the, the idea was life, the, the, the center of the life source was the stomach, the, particularly the lower part of the stomach. And they, they, they would say, oh, it's, it's, it, the, the life source is in the bowel. They, they would say, so, so for instance, in the first century, if you were dating someone and you said, sweetie, I just love you with all my heart. She'd be like, you weirdo, get away from me, right? But if I was dating someone in the first century and I said, sweetie, mm, you know, oh, you know what? I just want you to know, I just love you with all my bowel. Well, she would be like, oh, you move my bowels too, right? The center of being was your bowel. Let me show you. This is in the original Greek written Bible that John was writing. Let me show it to you in Greek. This is word for word. Next slide. The original language says, Kleose ta splakna. <laughs> Kleose, close, ta, the, splakna. Your splakna. He, he, he literally is saying, get off your butt and open your bowel. It's, it's, it's that. It's, it's don't live with a closed splachna. Life is not found in a shutteth up thou bowels situation. Life is not found in a closed splachna. Life is found with an open splachna. We would say, don't close your heart. Don't close your life. Don't close your generosity. We would say that. They would say, don't say tashplakna. Don't close your shplakna. So, so, so John, let's say this way, next slide. So John's key to entering life is to, is to live life with an open shplakna. <laughs> is to live life with a wide open bowel. A wide open shplakna. Now, what? <laughs> What does that mean? See, I work hard at every one of my sermons to have a certain line in it that no one will ever forget, right? Like, I walked up here today and someone I haven't seen in a year went, Samika, right? So I was like, hey, you remember, right? So 
this, this morning's message is, I want you to think through the Christmas season and as you go into the next year of how could I live with an open shplakna instead of a closed one? Have I been living with a closed shplakna? See, sermons aren't meant to be agreed with nor disagreed with. Sermons are meant to make you wrestle, meant to make you think. So let's think a bit. Next slide. Do you experience God yet leave the same? Like, is your story, you know what, I come to church, I do the worship, I listen, nothing's changing for me, I don't think it works. Here's the problem, it's working for other people, and you know what, it's probably not that you're bad, it might just simply be that you're experiencing God with a closed shplakna instead of an open one. It, it, might, it might just be you come in and you're distracted, your head's somewhere else. What if, what if you just gave 30 days, every time you come in here, that you, you put all of that to the side and you experience God with a wide open life source? a wide open heart, a wide open shplakna. Or, or maybe one way to think about it is this, is do, do you relate to someone who's hard to love? You, you know that one at work, you just wish God would go ahead and take them to heaven, that one? <laughs> what, what if we actually opened our heart, our, our shplakna? What if, we, what if we actually opened our life source and tried to hear it from their point of view? What, what if we started meeting their needs and see how that changes the dynamic? But you know, the, the, the most obvious application for today is simply this. Do you see a need and you know you could meet it? So let's be brave. Let's stop for a second and be quiet and cancel the white noise of our week and let's be brave enough to ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, would you bring to my mind a need that I know I can meet? Please don't burden me with things I can do nothing about. Is there a need that I can meet? Give me the courage to act. You know, if you could look this way, it is statistically improbable that there's not one person in this room, there would be at least one in a room this size, who could write a check for six figures and not even feel it. You could write a check for $100,000, call Pastor Tim and say, hey, for missions, for whatever, for making the world a better place, whatever, here's 100 grand. And you know what it would do to you? It would take your net worth from 8.2 million to 8.1. Oh no, what would you ever do? What are you gonna do, bro? You're gonna open your splatna or close it? There's a need and you know you can meet it. What are you gonna do? You say, Shane, stop right there. Stop. I've got $44 in the bank. Okay, then you're not the financial answer to anything. <laughs> you probably need a job and attend Financial Peace University, right? But let's, okay, let's take money and let's put it to the side. Let's pretend it does not exist. No such thing as money. Everybody relax, right? Here's the one thing we all have the same amount of, time. Time. You know, this is a great church. It's not a good church. It's not. It's a great church. It's a great church. It's growing. I get to come once a year, so I get to see it grow faster than everybody else. 
You know, I got greeted, even though I was here an hour early today, I still got greeted by a nice person. You mean to tell, do you mean to tell me that they, as fast as this church is growing, they can't use a few more people to show up 30 minutes early and be nice to people who are coming in the door who don't know where to go? You mean to tell, what's your story there? Shane, I can't show up 30 minutes and be nice. What are you talking about? Open your splatna, man. But you know what? I'm going to ask for prayer that God will give me more. More what? We're not using what we're given. You know what? I don't know who's in charge of the children's ministry today. I don't. But I know I love them. And I'll tell you why. Because this service is infinitely better without children running around in here. Right? Moms spending half the service. Shut up. Be quiet. Right? And children are better served being taught by people who are qualified to teach children right? I'd be the worst children's pastor on earth. You imagine me trying to teach children. Hi, boys and girls. We're going to talk about splagnas. Let me pull your finger. No, what? No, no, they need to be there, right? You, 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 mean, to, you mean to tell me that there's, that, that there's not a need for some more people who would be kind and loving to children? What's our story? It's not within my power to be kind to children. What? Open your splachna, man. You say, Shane, seriously, I hate them. I think children are disgusting. Okay, you're probably not our children's person. (laughs) I, I, I don't know who runs the youth, but let me tell you something about youth. In 25 years, the next generation will be running the joint, and you can't complain about where the next generation takes the world if you're not willing to be a part of molding the the generation's values when they're moldable. What's our story there? Give three hours a week. Open your splachna. Yeah, this team, this, uh, this church has an altar team. Here's the altar team's job. Be present and minister the spirit of God to people who are hurting a bit. You're already here. You can't help with that. Now, now, now listen, I, you know, if you... If you're terrified to pray, that's not your place, right? Or if you don't brush your teeth regularly, not your place, right? But you mean to tell me that, you know, they have a need for that. People to serve on that. You know what? You guys, you guys have an awesome music team here. It's awesome. But what, what if you're the best guitar player in Dallas and no one knows it? Now, let, let me be careful with this, Okay. If you're not sure that you're good, get it checked out first, right? By somebody not named mom, right? But if you're really good, three, four hours a week to help usher in the presence of God to people who are coming in to cancel the white noise and recenter their life around the spirit of God, come on. Open your splachna, man. You say, Shane, you'll know me, man. You'll know me. I'm a jerk. No one would want me on their team. Okay, a couple thoughts on that. One, if you know you're a jerk, stop being a jerk. That's one. Two, even if you're really introverted and don't like people, you can still be a sound man. There's a wall separating you from everybody. Like seriously, you turn knobs, you make it sound awesome. Come on. And if you're really introverted, we could dress you in all black, put you behind a camera. You could be like a camera ninja. It'll be awesome. But the best to John... And in my experience, and if you're honest, yours, people who live life to the fullest 
are not people who are the most correct or the most people preoccupied with being the most correct. People who live life to the fullest are the ones that when they see a need and they know they can meet the need, they give their life to open their splatnas all over that need. So my brothers and sisters of Embassy City, you know what? Info, dot, in, info at embassycity.com. 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 It's an email you'll send that every pastor in the world would love to get. And it's not a question about Leviticus 17. It goes like this. Hello, my name is such and so. And I don't know where I fit, but if you'll help me find my place, I'd love to help. I'd love to be a part of a team. Can you help me? Can you help me find my place? Info at embassycity.com. This is Christmas, everybody. May we celebrate heaven coming to earth. May we not just be people on our way to heaven when we die. So my brothers and sisters of Embassy City, I hope you enjoyed this morning. Until I see you next year, may you live every day with a wide open splack now. Grace and peace, everybody. God bless. Thanks for listening to this week's message. If you would like to know more about Embassy City Church, please visit us at embassycity.com and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Embassy Irving.